it's time to talk music, audio gear, and anything else that crosses our minds. I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. And welcome to the Hareton Audio Podcast. So fittingly, this is episode 24, first episode of the year 2024, uh, which wasn't on purpose either, but a happy coincidence. And I want to talk about sort of productivity in the line of New Year's resolutions and how a lot of people say at the start of a year, I want to do this and that by the time the next year is here and a lot of people flounder around if they're not organized and sometimes it doesn't have to be about doing a massive project in January it just has to be doing like one or two little things like, or just simply having a good start to the year that that can make a big difference yeah and, and a lot of the time people um I think that they say next week when it's better I'll have a go I'll make a start you know and I suppose what, what we want to talk about today is just uh, how you can improve your productivity, but also just like a few tips, because obviously we, we do a lot of different projects and you end up being very organized by doing that. Even the act of sitting here to record a podcast once a week is a daunting task in weeks where you're not organized. And, um, you know, we've been doing this podcast for almost uh, six months or around that, that sort of point. Yeah. And uh, we've managed to get into a routine of doing it among doing all of the other projects that we're doing. You know, we haven't we haven't hit every week, but we've hit the vast majority of the weeks. <laughs> yeah, there's been one or two weeks where where we've we've ended up with our sort of three in our two in three weeks sort of yeah sort of um, upload. But like I say, um, it's just about trying to do it and just saying, look, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and do something and see how it goes. But I mean. Uh, a lot of that can be just things to inspire your creativity or, or you like motivation. So you could say, if I do this, I'll save up for this. Or if I get this piece of equipment or whatever, it'll inspire me to use it. But obviously everybody's, um, everybody's mind works in different ways. Well, I think like at the start of a new year, the best way to get yourself like fired up in terms of being creative is to find something new. Now that can that can be a very broad thing. It could be a new band or artist that you really like. It might be a new producer that you really appreciate their sort of workflow and their actual results for. It can be as simple as investing in that one plugin that you really like. You know, there'll be people who don't buy anything to support the music making and that's fine. But sometimes you need a, a hit of inspiration, like whether it's one sample library or one plugin that you can just go to and be like, you know, I, well, I bought this, so I need to get on here and, and like do something with it because otherwise I feel like I would have been wasting my money. So I think these are subtle ways where, um, you know, you can motivate yourself without actually keeping it all in your head because you, you look over at something and it might remind you, oh yeah, you know, I did buy that thing and I haven't done a lot with it, so maybe I should get it out and, and use it. And also, say say if you're in an example where you can't really afford um, what you want to do, the thing is now is, I mean, I, I don't want to advocate for subscriptions because I don't like subscription models, particularly with like um, sort of like professional technology, be it like camera equipment, filming equipment, um, music software. equipment, software, anything. But in... In that, retrospectively, obviously, you can get a door and you don't have to foot the full 400 or 300 pound. You know, like if you if you don't want to, you can always try it out for two months and say, do I like it? Do I not? As like a demo. Or you could say, look, I'm going to pay for this monthly. And if I get to the end of each month and I don't actually open it up, then I'm going to cancel it. 
Yeah, so it's a good way to trial a piece of software instead of going out on a limb, buying what you think you're going to use um, for like three to four hundred pound professionally, and then going, oh, I'm going to sell this on eBay because I haven't used it. It's that sort of stuff that really helps. I mean, um, we've been talking about Mix with the Masters as just a way to sort of give us some creativity when sort of making and mixing music, haven't we, Peter? Yeah, well, it, you know, this is Instagram adverts getting me, but I mean, I've been familiar with Mix with the Masters for quite a while, and I think I do. I did follow them because they do really interesting stuff, you know. I find that the most exciting thing for me in terms of production is seeing how somebody that I listen to like an album that I actually have or that I always listen to if somebody can break down one of the songs on that and tell me exactly how it's made that is definitely the thing that I find the most exciting seeing what gear they used seeing you know what the workflow was what were the choices that they was gonna make but they didn't you know that that can be the most exciting thing because you sat there thinking well hang on there was gonna do all this you know like snap to a grid or they was going to do it super modern and then last minute they say look let's go for a vibe instead and you might be sat there thinking well maybe i should go for the vibe and and go for you know something that isn't holding yourself to a higher standard because you know i think in everybody's heads you know if you make music you often think it's a lot worse than it is and you might show it to somebody and they might be absolutely blown away for whatever reason it is it may just be the energy because you know it gets to a point, I think, where a lot of professional music makers, you know, they can record super slick, like, jams and everything, but there's a raw energy that can be quite difficult to capture, I think, even for the most experienced in the in the industry. And I also think a lot of people look at their favourite songs and think this is a masterpiece, every note is there on purpose, the delivery was in, on purpose from the singer. Everything about it was chosen specifically to make this product. And then sometimes you look at them behind the scenes and they say, well, we didn't have this song. Um, like they were saying with Tony Iommi's uh, and Black Sabbath's uh, Paranoid. Paranoid. Yeah. They said the only reason Paranoid was written is because uh, they had two, two and a half minutes to fill on one side of vinyl and then just needed to write a short song. Obviously, the record label guys took that and ran with it because it's a short enough song to play on radio, which the band didn't really think of when they was asked to write it. They was just asked to write a short song. Because his, his full point is, well, we don't write short songs. We write five-minute songs. So why would we write a, yeah, like a three-minute pop song? Mm. And they didn't intend to write a pop song. But I wonder if that by simply just changing their regular rhythm, instead of saying, look, we need to write a five-minute, like, you know, I'm trying to think of a word that can describe Black Sabbath because it's it's such a it's bizarre sort thing. Of in the doom rock, that's before what I was, I was doom say rock doom. was a thing. They sort of invented it almost. But um, you know, like a more uh, let's say spiritually dark, you know, intense composition, long form, more progressive composition. When they sit down to write a three-minute song, well, it's going to be hard to do them same trope. So that's probably how they fell into making Paranoid like a really good radio single. Cause naturally, it was fast because yeah. it had to be fast because it was a short song. <laughs> so, that I mean, that's a great example of how to change up your results or change up your uh, process by just saying, look, we normally do five-minute songs. Let's do a three-minute one. It might be the opposite. I mean, you could take something like Coloratura by Coplay and you could say, look, we normally write three-minute songs. Let's do a ten-minute one. 
Yes, um, and challenge yourself creatively, uh, creatively to do something that um, you wouldn't normally do. And also, like you look at a lot of these projects, and it's like um, obviously on on um, what's the pod uh, tape notes? There we go. Um, they they break down part of the band by 1975, and you you know it sounds very deliberately like orchestral when you listen to it for the first time. But it was meant to be Bruce Springsteen songs, so it's just. But then none of them was really vibing that much, and then they changed it when the orchestral players played some stuff. They went, "Oh, that's that's cool. Let's do that." And it's like, you know, sometimes ideas and and what what we look at as a fan perspective as perfection is just a happy accident from like the the manufacturing side of it. I suppose as well, you know, I think everybody can be very guilty of saying, look, I want this song to be a house beat or drum and bass, or I want this to be a a heavy rock or punk punk song. And sometimes maybe you should listen to the song you record and say, well, what does the song, what is the song saying back to you? You know, it sounds very pretentious, but you may be trying to record like a really fast steamrolling like punk track and you may listen to the vocal you might go well that vocal's really melodic and these chords that that sort of would go under if we played them on a different instrument like on a keyboard that might be really melodic and all of a sudden you might say well maybe we're not playing this in the right genre you know i think if you can you know it's definitely a more difficult thing to do because you sort of have to take the wheels off the training wheels off and just say to the song fly and say lead us where we're supposed to go yeah yeah uh 100 and that that's that's all that it takes i think sometimes to to spark an idea and then you end up with something but um i think as well it's just about trying to make those steps and trying to do like an hour or two hours a day it sounds really hard to do when you're not in a routine but I think that's the key to actually getting somewhere because I think if you never work on, if you say go like three or four months without working on a project because you're busy or you're at work or whatever, and then you go back to that project, you go, well, I don't know. I mean, I, I was uh, in a different place when I when we started that and three months later, you know, you don't want to work on it, which happens to a lot of people. Um, I think it's better just to slowly chip away at it and then you never feel like you're coming back to something after two or three months in a completely different headspace. I mean, we're very guilty of starting a project and then by the time we're halfway through, we want to do something else. And then you're trying to finish this idea and your mind's like, well, I'm done with that idea. I want to go to the next idea, but you're still trying to finish. I think that is definitely the the bane of most creative people is that, you know, your mind can move like so fast or, you know, I suppose there's always that excitement of the next thing. So I find, you know, this is where the memes come from, where it's like idea like 560 that's unfinished and, yeah, and stuff yeah. like that. Because the the actual potential of, of scrapping what you've got and starting again is so much more satisfying for a lot of people than actually finishing that that thing that you've been working on for like a month. But you know, if you don't ever finish anything, you don't ever really have anything. So it becomes a bizarre and vicious cycle where sometimes you've really got to sit there and say, look, let's just finish this. Even if it goes on your band camp or yeah, your SoundCloud. I do think a lot of people, when they get to like a, a stage where they're almost finishing a track, it's very easy to just say, no, it's not good enough. And you don't learn anything from having a track that you never 
release in in my opinion even if you mix it and master it but you never actually put it on spotify you can have like the mp3 and listen to that and say what do i like and what don't i like about that but when you've got a mix session say in ableton or, or whatever and you you have to open ableton and you can just tweak it immediately because you've got all the faders and plugins in front of you yeah that that idea will, is never fully finished so you can never really add feedback to that idea because there's something about having just like a a WAV or an MP3 in, say, iTunes or Spotify or whatever, you can compare it to any song you like, any song you've previously done, and you immediately draw conclusions that you would never draw when you just sat listening to it in the door. I will say for, for this is something that I think people probably know, but I don't think anybody ever does. Spotify has an offline local library version so if you've got like spotify on your laptop that's the main thing you use you go oh it's too difficult to like listen to my mixes in spotify there's literally a tab that says local files and it will just scan all your local files and just like if you set it to a folder where you have all your finished exports then boom they're in spotify you can queue them in a playlist so you know there is a volume disparity depending on how you set it up that's something you've got to listen to but you know, you can just integrate these into your, a lot of the streaming setups now. You know, you don't have to have an offline library on iTunes, which I do think this is a barrier to why people don't export because they go, well, I'll never listen to it. I don't use iTunes. It's like, well, if you use Spotify, you can just stick it in there. You know, yeah. you don't have to upload it to Spotify server. You can just put it on your hard drive and, and access it through Spotify with all Spotify's, you know. And you can also put it in your own playlist so you can have your finished mix playlist on Spotify, but none of them's out on Spotify. It's just in your local hard drive, but it gives you the illusion when you're looking at it that you have finished it and you're looking at it within Spotify as well, which I think is quite nice. Yeah, and also it just means it's one click away. You're already opening Spotify, you're listening to your favourite playlist. Oh, I'll just cue that mix, see how it sounds back-to-back against one of my other favourite artists. And boom, all of a sudden, that massive barrier of finding it in your folder structure and everything's gone. It's just right there, queued up. Yeah, and I think a lot of people, like, even if we, say, move away from music and we look at just being creative, like, it's so easy to start a new hobby, particularly with the technology that we have. When I mean... Video masterclasses, I've always been a little bit more wishy-washy on because it, it, you have to, a lot of the time, fork down a lot of money and then it's, do you have what they have and, you know, how how far are you in the experience and, and does it translate well when you're watching? But I mean, like, when you just think about, oh, I want to get into photography and you've got the camera quality you've got on a phone in comparison to what people had 20 years ago to get into photography, it's immediate, you know, and... um the amount of like apps that are free for computers and phones where you can get into a new skill, so like animation or or just like like art in general. Also, like learning another language that seems to be one of the most accessible things possible now. Yeah, it does. Um, and yeah, it's just about trying to do any goal. But like, say, if you get, say, if you're if you're a musician listening to this podcast, right you can get into doing photography and that can lead to doing your own album art or you know you can get into animation or or like um just general like fine art or whatever be it creatively like in the room with you know pen pencils charcoal and paper or on a computer via one of those um you know those uh the tablet the tablet things uh it's a way for you to be creative but also it's something that you can learn how to do and you might actually make something nice enough where you go, 
I want to use that as the next single cover or the next album cover or promo on social media or whatever. And it's like tying the skills together, but also doing that side sort of hobby might give you the inspiration to go, well, I've tried something different there. Now I want to try something different next time I go into the studio to make something or next time I want to get a guitar and um, write a song, you know? Yeah. I think that's, I think just experimenting and just trying to maybe not hold yourself to such a high standard. Because I think anybody who makes music, especially if you release it to Spotify, it doesn't matter how many people listen to it. You're always searching for that top girl. You're like, you know, you've got your high standards. I think sometimes you need to sort of try and make the process fun again. You know, I think there's a lot of, a lot of creative people who, you know, will make something that, all the friends or all the all the sort of music friends who listen to it. Cause I think a lot of people do have people that they know that also make music that I can throw tracks to here and there. A lot of people might be like, that's great. You should finish it or you should put it out. And you'll be like, yeah, but I don't think it's very original or yeah, I don't like the bass sound. I'm going to remake it all. Or I don't like the arrangement or, you know, it's even like a style thing. You might be like, yeah, but it's not me. It's that this song isn't me. It's like, well, you made it. So how could it not be you? It doesn't matter what, if it's a trap beat and you normally make rock. I mean, you made it. Yeah. And, and this comes back to like people being, being almost like scared to put music out or scared to finish it or scared to say this is done. Because like you say, it, as soon as you say this is done, you're saying I've done as much as I can on this and um, this is now a finished song so you can compare it, compare it to other finished songs. Whereas when you have an idea, it's like, well, this is just a draft. Oh, yeah, I can, well, I, I was going to change that. You know, if somebody says like, well, the the, the kick's low too ends, loud. <laughs> the low end's phasing or everything sounds weird or blah, blah, blah. You know, you go, well, yeah, I'll, I'll tweak that in my next mix. Whereas when, when you say, well, I've done it, somebody's like yeah there's a weird sound there you're like that's it doesn't matter that's that's there now that's part of the song you know yeah and like um i saw a lot of people i think it was sound on sound was it where they had chris stapleton um and they were saying the engineer was saying that everything came off an amp and a microphone and a cab and there was no funny business no um no messing about no no tuning up no quantizing no nothing and everybody in the comments was going yeah finally a real production I think, and stuff um, <laughs> it's i think it's pure mix online yeah. which is very similar to mixwood masters and um i think the band is tennessee whiskey I think, right, but okay. it's got Chris Stapleton in it. Uh, yeah. And that's a big, I think, I haven't looked at that. That's just my deduction. But yeah, the full point in the comments where people were like, you know, wow, there's a band of musicians who are actually playing, you know, and there's an engineer who's just let it be and just, you know, focused on getting it to sound great, but not focused on, you know, sounding great isn't necessarily strapping everything to a grid and squeezing all the life out of it. That That isn't sounding great, you know. It's it's really hard to 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 visualize like with today's tech, but like in the early two thousands, that was practically impossible. Like unless you were Daft Punk, you weren't doing that. People were like, "Look, we got like sixteen tracks on a digital mixer, and uh, you know, if we're lucky, we could put some compression and reverb on this." Yeah, yeah. yeah. A lot of the a lot of the synths were just played by a MIDI sequencer, and the synth sound was the mix. The drum machine choice was the mix. You know, there was not a lot of mixing that happened apart from just like some basic couple of bands of EQ and a, you know, like a mix buzz compressor. 
and the volume that that's the sort of thing that you know especially independent music making that's where it was at 20 years ago yeah and they had like a box pc that could barely render one effect yeah you could probably yeah you'd probably struggle to to even load one of today's plugins on it you know never mind all this ableton stuff where you know ableton's like like it's the equivalent of being a surgeon, like when it comes to music. Yeah. It was back in the day, people, you know, people could barely, you know, do anything. You couldn't get that fine into it. I mean, if the performance was off, you would just have to replay it. Yeah. And there's nothing, like I said, it's not, there's nothing wrong with sequencing music and there's nothing wrong with leaving mistakes in. But I mean, like, I suppose the problem is now is if you have a live band recording and somebody makes a mistake, everybody goes, well, we'll fix it in a mix, you know, and that's just how it seems to be at the moment. But sometimes embracing that mistake, I mean, it, it all depends on the mistake, whether it's like a, a monumental song breaker or whether it's like a, a duff note here or a bit of um, feedback from an amp or a drum fill that maybe is a little bit too long, but the full band's playing with it. So you don't really feel that jarring sort of movement on, on the track, you know, but if you embrace those mistakes, that makes you sound different from other people, because at the moment people don't leave mistakes in music. Um, and it, it's more like an attitude thing as well, but a lot of people are craving like organic music and, and it is out there. And I feel sorry for any band who's making organic music that they're just recording in a room, mixing it well, you know, like with 10, 15 microphones and then uh, putting it out because people say like magazines and stuff to say, where's the bands? Where's the talent? And you go, the talent's there. It's just nobody, nobody wants to give them a chance and no no label can be bothered to say, here's your, your advance. You're on this label, but that that's the thing that's so frustrating and you'll see people create uh, praise like say pure mix or whatever for a band that that doesn't use all the fancy studio tricks but then if a local band in any area is like this is our album it's recorded with four of us playing straight off our amps people go oh, that's because you can't afford anything else you know yeah i think there's there's a big there's a big attitude difference because you know when you can make everything perfect, regardless of skill level, there comes a conundrum where you will make something perfect, even if it's detrimental to the feeling and the emotion of that. I think we all find there's always a massive discussion with pitch correction on, is it actually helping? You know, is it actually helping? You know, it's really, it's such a nuanced argument. Like, there's there's applications where you listen to it and go, yeah, you're taking that wrong note and making it right, which is objectively true. But then there's other applications of, well, you know, if you take a track where the vocal's good enough, it's fine. You know, there's personality, there's vibrato, there's, you know, glides in the vocal, and you, you're hitting, like, basically all the notes. But if you sit there and go, ah, my vibrato's really bothering me, and I didn't get up to that note fast enough, and you start squeezing all of that that performance and personality out of it, then I think that's where the problem lies. You know, because it may be that like you're going so many more steps, you know, because you're insecure about people scrutinising the vocal. But, I mean, we, we keep talking about Olivia Rodrigo and she just does whatever on her tracks and they're massive, they're hugely popular. Nobody says, well, you're just, you just, like, screeching or talking and this part's eternal. And, yes, we know she can sing and we know that there's melodics, but it's, it's the fact that there's obvious sections in it where 
you know, there isn't any processing, and you can tell. You can tell the difference. Yeah, where she's chosen to sound like angry or hyped up, or, or and to do that, the only way you can do that really is by not singing the notes and sort of like ramping up the energy, which translates to hair on the record almost shouting at you, the listener. Yeah, you know, and like bad idea writing stuff. It's 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 that sort of energy, and it's very different because you don't hear that a lot on radio, and I know that. She is like a major label act, but um, it's nice to hear a little bit of that because hopefully in the next few years, we're going to see, at least within the rock and traditional genres, we're going to see a movement away from perfectionism and into just like a sort of like a pseudo grungy thing where they're just embracing people recording. Because I think you can be perfect and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, albums that are examples to me in the modern days, modern age of that is I Like It When You Sleep by the 1975. I mean, the track like She's American is just textbook perfection. And I love that song. I love that album. I think it's fantastic because I like to listen to, you know, songs that are amazing in the traditional sense. But then, you know, that doesn't work if you're making grunge. It's it's an application thing. If you're making like pseudo 80s pop, then yeah, you're probably going to want it perfect. You might have to use drum machines. You may have to do all these tricks we've been talking about to actually make it sound right. Because in the 80s, if the drummer couldn't play it, they just put a drum machine on it. They used a synth bass. They just they just did whatever. They didn't care. But if you're like going for a 60s, 70s feel, doing that will hurt the vibe of your music. Yeah. It's like, I suppose you've got to think of it like almost like... It's... it's a case-by-case basis yeah. with a lot of stuff. And you've got to think of it almost like a, a test. Like if you were saying to, say, a professor, uh, well, I'm I'm doing this with this paintbrush in art. And somebody went, well, Pablo Picasso, he didn't use that type of paintbrush. He didn't use that type of paint. So how are you meant to paint that picture with the wrong type of paint? It's almost like colours, if you, if you will, with music. Yeah. You know, it's very hard to i mean obviously there's there's really good artists who do like mind-bending illusions in the wrong medium but that aside um it's very hard to do something when you're using all the wrong tools i suppose it's better with construction you know if you're using the wrong nails it's not gonna work yeah and i think the idea is you know if you're if you're trying to fix everything and you want to sound like nirvana nirvana didn't fix anything do you know what i mean they just played they played and captured a vibe so, you know, I know you can watch the classic albums where they had, you know, was it Something in the Way, Something in the Wind, what's the song? I think it's Something in the Way. Something in the Way. What, where he's whispering it on the yeah. couch. Yeah, 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 he's whispering it. But they were saying that on that one, they they had to play it all to Kurt Cobain's guitar and he just did it live to no click. So his guitar and vocals were already done. And so, you know, Dave Gohl on drums... And Chris, Chris Stoppleton, I want to say, but I feel like I'm getting that wrong. We know it's about right. Him on the bass and the cello player, they all had to try and match this. And they said it was incredibly difficult. And they actually had Pro Tools out in its primitive incarnation to um, actually do correction, to try and make it work. And they said even after they did that, it really didn't make much of a difference ultimately because the track was jank anyway. And you know, when people listen to that, are people sat there picking apart the timing on the bass and drums to the guitar? No, 
Most people probably don't even process as a bass in that song. You probably don't even think about it because you think this is Nirvana, they're the best band ever. They're not going to make mistakes, even though when you watch that classic album, you see that, you know, uh, Kirk wasn't a very confident singer. He was, you know, he was scared to double track until somebody said, well, John Lennon double tracked his vocals. And then he'd go, well, fine, I'll double track my Cause, vocals. Because it, it, to him, that wasn't cheating. If the Beatles did it, he could do it. Yeah, because their full thing is they didn't want to produce too much because they didn't want to sell out. So they're trying to make this, you know, nice sort of like sparkly hit grunge record, essentially. You know, as far as the label and Butch Vig were trying to do, that's what they're trying to make. They're trying to make like a radio-ready grunge album. But Nirvana are like, well, we don't want to stray too far from the path because then everybody will say we're sold out. So, you know, like you say, double tracking. Most people don't even view double tracking as a, a skill now. A lot of people just do it and it's they presume that it is the right thing to do. People love double tracking. Yeah, and double tracking is interesting because if you have a tight double track, it's great. But some people like a loose double track because it adds an energy, particularly in like... um. If you're talking about, say, very aggressive rock genres and yeah. metal and stuff, double rap. tracking, rap. well, rap is very, very, yeah, obviously with like the, the way they say Run DMC or Beastie Boys have that sort of backing vocal and stuff, a lot of people have emulated that within within a rap and it's just one of those things. It, it gives certain words emphasis, it gives it a different sort of sound and like say you, you depending on how you double track it, it it gives it a very different vibe. But most importantly, the reason why double tracking is so popular is because if you're, as a, as a listener, if you can hear two notes that are very similar, your brain will correct them for you. Yeah, you sort of find that middle ground, don't you? You yeah. say, well, these, these two notes are either side of C, subconsciously, so they sing in C. Yeah. So it's just a, a way to make the vocal sound less bare in the mix. That's all it was sort of originally done for. And it's just like one of those you know staples of vocal tracking is do we want to double track i think it also though it's just a primitive car like the chorus a vocal chorus is a an age-old tradition and experience and and in the brain it's just familiar and, and you know the idea of somebody just singing on their own in front of a massive thing of music you know that's not alien either but there's something I suppose, like a sense of community and whatever in having a lot of vocals presented. I think that's why it's very appealing to the ear, you know, big harmonies and vocal stacks, gang vocals. Yeah. And um, I think that's all we're going to talk about uh, on today's episode about productivity and that. Hopefully we're giving you some good ideas and some different attitudes towards being creative and I know we've mainly focused on the music side, but I suppose we are an audio podcast in that sense, uh, audio thematically, not just audio to listen to. Um, so yeah, anything else to add, Peter? For any, any New Year's resolutions? Just to recap, find something new that you can get excited about because that always inspires. It doesn't have to be expensive. It can be completely free, but just find something new. Right, and on that note, we'll see you next week, everybody. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.